Isaiah chapter 36. Let's start at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish and King Hezekiah to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the field to, on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. You notice right away as we read these first three verses of Isaiah chapter 36 that we're really shifting gears, aren't we? I mean, this isn't like the book of Isaiah before. You read this, and this could be from the book of First or Second Kings or First or Second Chronicles. It doesn't read like Isaiah has been reading. Well, matter of fact, we're in the midst of a four-chapter section, chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39, that are more historical in their character. And I thank God that he's put these chapters in the book of Isaiah. One of the major themes that we've been looking at at Isaiah chapters 1 through 35 has been this theme of the coming Assyrian invasion and how God was calling Judah to trust in him instead of Egypt or anybody else for deliverance from the mighty Assyrian army. Now here in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37 tonight, we're going to see how the Lord worked it all out. And don't you love that? You know, tonight during our time of prayer, we had some beautiful praise reports. And that's what it is tonight here in Isaiah 36 and 37. It's the praise report. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. It's the Lord working out his word. Now it takes place in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, verse 1 tells us. This is about the year 700 B.C., during the reign of the godly king Hezekiah of Judah. By the way, the events of this chapter are also recorded in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And so we find in this time, verse 1, that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now again, the Assyrian invasion has been the broad background for much of Isaiah's prophecy in chapters 1 through 35. Now, Isaiah gives us a historical record of what happened during this time that he was prophesying about. Let's remind ourselves that the Assyrian army swept down from the north and it conquered Syria. I know this is a tongue twister, folks. We've got Assyria and Syria. This is the time where I kind of wish we had the PowerPoint projector up there and we could get out the maps and show you the difference here. But you have this mighty empire of Assyria with King Sennacherib. They conquered Syria and then the northern kingdom of Israel. We remind ourselves that since the civil war of King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, uh, the people of God have been divided into two nations, right? The northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. So the Assyrians conquered the Syrians, they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Now they've been sweeping through the southern kingdom of Judah. And friends, uh, all this happened just as Isaiah prophesied. By the way, might I say that if you go through passages like Isaiah chapter uh, 7, verses 16 through 17, it describes how the Lord said, you know what, Judah, the Assyrians are going to come and just lay havoc to your whole countryside. Well, we read here in verse uh, 2, then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. At the time of Isaiah chapter 36, 
The Assyrian army has conquered, again, both Syria and the northern king of Israel. It's devastated the countryside and the fortified cities of Judah. All that remains is Jerusalem. And if the Assyrians conquer Jerusalem, then everything's destroyed. Then Judah no longer ceases, no longer remains, I should say, as a kingdom. Now, you might read that in verse 2 and say, uh, who's the Rabshakeh? Actually, it's a title, not a name. It describes the field commander for the Assyrian army. By the way, the name literally seems to mean cupbearer to the king. But this was a position of high authority that it seems to be translated and made its way through the years to have the idea of the field commander. We're never told, or some commentators think we do know the name of this fellow, but we're not told it here in Isaiah uh, chapter 36. This is a guy who's the field commander for the Assyrian king Sennacherib. By the way, one other thing that I want to notice out here for you in verse uh, 2, where it speaks about with a great army from Lachish. The mention of Lachish is historically important. Lachish was 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and it was a very important border town and fortress town for the, for the, the nation of Judah. And archaeologists have discovered a pit there with the remains of 1,500 casualties of Sennacherib's attack here. They've done extensive excavations there. And uh, in the British Museum, you can see vast Assyrian carvings uh, depicting their siege of the city of Lachish, which again was a very important fortress city of Judah. So if you notice here at verse 2, this guy, Rabshakeh, stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, and then Eliakim, Shivna, Joah came out to him. Now, I want you to notice something. This Assyrian field commander, Rabshakeh, he seems to be in complete command of the situation. He can walk right into the city of Jerusalem, stand at the crucial water supply, which, by the way, would be Jerusalem's life source, its lifeline, if the city was attacked by a siege. And as he stands there, three officials from Hezekiah's government come to meet him. Now again, let me just remind you something about warfare in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when you were going to attack a city, you wouldn't get together all your armies and run everybody like mad. You know, you see it in the movies sometimes like that. You know, thousands of people shaking spears. Ah, you know, and they run and they go to the walls of the city. You wouldn't do that in the ancient world. You know why? You take too many casualties. The walls were so defendable. It was so easy for the people up on the walls, you know, just like in the medieval movies, you see the vat of boiling oil going over the wall and all this stuff. Well, you know, it worked. Walls were very defendable. Walls were the defense of a city. And it's not that you couldn't attack a city. That's why it was just you would take way too many casualties to do it. So almost always the way an ancient army would attack a city was they would get their army and camp around it and surround the city and not let anything in or out of the city for a year, two years. Sometimes sieges lasted 10 or 20 years. And what you do is you just wait them out. You would wait out until everybody in that city had starved to death or died of dehydration and gave up. Then you just walk in. So this is what was going to happen. Now, in any siege, the most important thing you could have is water, right? So a city had to have a water supply so you didn't have to go outside of the walls of the city. Here, Rabshakeh comes and he stands on the aqueduct, Jerusalem's water supply. This was the city's lifeline if there was going to be a siege. And he says, let me talk to you officials from the government of Hezekiah. Look what he says here, verse 4. And the Rabshakeh said to them, say now to Hezekiah, 
Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? I say you speak of having counsel and strength for war, but they are vain words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt, on which if a man leads, it will go into it, leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. I think this is interesting. That when the Rabshakeh comes and when he confronts these three officials of Hezekiah's government, he asks a good question. What is the confidence in which you trust? One of the great battles for Hezekiah during this period was the temptation to make a defensive alliance with Egypt, which seemed to be the only nation strong enough to protect Judah against the mighty Assyrians. I mean, here you are, you're Hezekiah, the king of Judah, and the Assyrians are coming down, and you think, they're going to wipe us out? What are we going to do? We'll partner with a larger nation that will protect us, the Egyptians. Friends, do the people of God have any business forming a defensive alliance with the people of Egypt? No. And the prophet Isaiah did everything he could to discourage Hezekiah and the leaders of Judah from putting their trust in Egypt. We've seen this in our previous study. Don't you remember all those prophecies where Isaiah is saying, don't trust in Egypt, don't trust in Egypt? And I think it's fascinating that in this sense, Rabshakeh is speaking the truth. There was no confidence to be had in Egypt. Judah was to have no trust in them at all. But by the way, could you say that Rabshakeh was doing this to bring Judah into a firm trust of the Lord their God? No. Isaiah said, don't trust in Egypt. Rabshakeh said, don't trust in Egypt. Isaiah said it so that they would trust in the Lord. Rabshakeh said it to drive them into fear, discouragement, and despair. He wants to completely demoralize Judah and drive them to despair. Now, don't you think it's interesting that Satan attacks us the same way so often? Rabshakeh was telling the truth. He was saying to the people of Judah, don't trust in Egypt. Isaiah could have said that. But often, even when Satan tells us the truth, he never does it to lead us into a firm trust in God. And what do I mean by Satan telling you the truth? You ever had this one from the devil? You're such a dirty, rotten, low-down sinner. You know what? He don't know the half of it. You can't argue with that. But does he do it to lead us into a firm trust in the Lord our God? Does he lead us to say, I'm such a low down rotten sinner and Jesus died for sinners. So if I'm a rotten sinner, Jesus died to forgive and free me. Thank you, Jesus. No. Instead, Satan's strategy, even when he tells us the truth, is always to demoralize us and to drive us to despair. Exactly what Rav Shekhar was doing. And so he says, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt. I think it's fascinating that Rabshakeh could see Egypt's weakness better than many of the people of Judah could. So he goes on here, verse 7. He says, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, Rabshakeh is anticipating the response of these leaders of Judah. He says, you guys can't trust in Egypt. And he answers, well, we're not trusting in Egypt, Rabshakeh. We're trusting in the Lord our God. And you know what Rabshakeh says? He says, you can't trust in him either. You can't trust in him at all. Now, why does Rabshakeh say that you can't trust in the Lord your God? Fascinating, verse 7. He says, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? Do you know what high places were? 
high places were in ancient Israel places where people had individual altars and shrines of worship to the Lord. And the Lord prohibited these. In other words, God declared in his law, you'll find this in Leviticus chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. God said that you're not to offer sacrifices, especially any kind of sacrifice that was an atonement for sin. You're not to offer sacrifices anywhere you please. You're to bring it to the tabernacle or to the temple. Now, there's something in us, we call it a sin nature, that wants to go against what God says, right? Say, Lord, why can't I just have my own altar outside this hill right outside my house? You know, not too far out of my house. There's, there's a real nice hill up there. You know, there's a cross over there, Mount McCoy. And that's the kind of place where they would say, let's build an altar up there. and We can have a place to It's on a hill. It's closer to God, right? I can be close to God there. Why do I need to go all the way to the tabernacle or to the temple in Jerusalem and offer the sacrifice? I'll just offer it on this high hill. And that's what they did. Now, Hezekiah, as a righteous king, when he came to power, he shut down all the high places. He said, you're not going to do this anymore. This is disobedience to the law of God. Now, God honored that in Hezekiah. But what I think is interesting about this is that Rabshakeh misunderstands this. In Rabshakeh's thinking, Hezekiah's reforms would have really displeased God so that he shouldn't expect help from the God of Israel. And you think, well, why would Rabshakeh think that it would displease the Lord? Well, he's probably looking at it this way. Hey, look, look at all the places where people used to worship the Lord God of Israel. Now, since Hezekiah came, there's only one place. More's better, right? So since he shut down all these places, oh, the God of Israel must be really mad at Rabshakeh. You know, the enemy of our souls has an amazing way of discouraging our obedience. It's as if he's looking at what Hezekiah did, and he said, you did this in obedience, but the Lord's going to curse it. You ever feel that way, friends? That's straight from the pit of hell. And if Hezekiah was not careful, this argument of Rabshakeh would start to make sense, even though it was demonic logic through and through. So, notice here, he first does, uh, speaks against don't trust in Egypt, then you can't trust in the Lord, now you can't trust in your army. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? You know, this reminds us of Rabshakeh's whole strategy to make Judah give up. Isn't that what he's there for? He says, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria. Let's remember something. This is the entire reason for Rabshakeh being at the aqueduct, speaking to these leaders of Hezekiah's government. Think about it. The field commander of the Assyrian army has vastly superior armies. Vastly. It's not even a fair fight. It's not even close. He could have just attacked Jerusalem without giving this little speech. But Rabshakeh doesn't want to do that. You know what he wants to do? He wants to talk to the leaders and to the people of Judah and try to get them to simply give up out of fear, discouragement, or despair. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like a, a, a mugger has a gun in his pocket, and he could pull out the gun and just say, give me your money. 
But what he wants to do is he wants to try to con you out of it first. That's what Rabshakeh is trying to do. And can I tell you that the enemy of our souls uses the exact same approach. Sometimes we picture Satan as kind of itching for a fight with us. You know, ooh, yeah, I want to go at it. Yeah, let's go. Can I tell you something? I honestly believe that Satan doesn't want to do battle with you. Not at all. He does not want to do battle with you. Why? Well, first of all, there's the strong chance that you'll win. He that's in you is greater than he that's in the world. Satan doesn't want to do battle with you. Secondly, win or lose, the battle can draw you closer to the Lord. How many times have you lost in spiritual battle, but it ended up drawing you closer to the Lord? And Satan doesn't win, right? Thirdly, what the Lord does in your life through the battle, win or lose, can be a great blessing for other people. My friends, I suggest to you tonight that Satan doesn't want to fight you at all. He would much rather try to talk you into giving up. That's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to battle with you. He doesn't want to go toe-to-toe with you. You've got Jesus Christ on your side. So you know what he wants to do? He wants to try to talk you into giving up. Wasn't this the exact strategy Satan used against Jesus during his temptation in the wilderness? When Satan promised Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for Jesus' worship, Satan was trying to avoid the fight and trying to talk Jesus into giving up. It didn't work with Jesus, and it shouldn't work with us. So he says there in verse 8 and 9, listen, you know, I'll give you 2,000 horses. If you're able on your part to put riders on them, you know, we could beat you with one hand tied behind our back is his basic message. And then he goes on, you know, you got to say, this is pretty brutal, Rab Shekhar, right? He's, I mean, he's hitting home with this stuff. You think that's bad enough? Look at verse 10. Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Oh, man. You know, he's used some brilliant arguments so far. You can't trust in Egypt, number one. Number two, he said, the Lord isn't on your side, right? Because you removed all those high places. Number three, he goes, your army is so weak, it can't do anything. And then finally, man, this number four, this one's brutal. Rav looks at him and goes, you know what? God's on my side. I'm doing the will of God right here. This is his best thrust, and he saves it for last. He says, admit it, Hezekiah. You know that God is on my side. Now, like every good deception, this one would have been easy for Hezekiah and his men to believe this one. After all, hadn't the Assyrians been wildly successful? Conquer the Syrians, conquer Israel, lay waste everything in Judah, everything except Jerusalem. I mean, this is it. They conquer this. Everything's gone. And isn't God always on the side of the successful one? God must be with them. Surely God must be on their side. I mean, don't they have the most powerful army? Surely God must be on their side. And Rabshakeh says, hey, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. This is the finishing blow of a brilliant attack. Hezekiah, God told me to destroy you. I'm just doing his will. And there's nothing you can do to stop it, so you may as well surrender. Can we say, significantly, I think, that Rabshakeh was partially correct? 
Was God with the Assyrian army? You better believe it. I mean, God was with him, and his attack on Judah fulfilled God's prophesied plan. You know, you can go back in Isaiah chapter 8, in Isaiah chapter 7, and many other passages in the first 35 chapters of Isaiah, and he said, hey, you know what? See the Syrians? Don't worry about it. I'm going to take the Assyrians after him. See Israel? Don't worry about it. I'm going to take the Assyrians after him. Judah, you guys better get ready. The Assyrians are going to come, and they're going to lay you guys waste. God ordained that the Assyrians come down and do this. Rabshakeh is partially correct. God allowed it to happen so that his prophesied plan would be fulfilled. However, friends, let's make something very, very clear here. We should never think that God tempted an innocent man with an evil plan. Is this how it worked? Here's Sennacherib, king of the Assyrians, sitting in his palace. Oh, Lord, I just love you so much. What can I do to bless your people, Lord? And then the Lord overcame the good heart of Sennacherib and put evil into his heart and said, go against my people. No. What did God have to do to allow Sennacherib or to make sure that Sennacherib would go and fight against the people of Judah in Israel and Syria? God had to do anything special. He just simply had to let the bloodthirsty, conquest-hungry Assyrians do what they wanted to do. Therefore, the Assyrians could never excuse themselves by saying, we were doing the Lord's will. Maybe you've heard me say this before, because I think this is the best example of it, and I'll bring it out on this topic every time I have the opportunity. It's the example of Judas. When Judas betrayed our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ... Was he doing the will of God? Yes, he was. It was God's ordained plan that the Son of Man would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and sold into the hands of the sinful religious leaders. Friends, it was prophesied. It was ordained. Jesus said Judas was going to do it. It was almost written before the foundation of the world that that was going to happen. Now, could you imagine Judas standing before God on the day of judgment and saying, hey, you can't blame me for that one, Lord. I was just fulfilling your plan. Matter of fact, I made the crucifixion possible, right? No betrayal, no crucifixion. They should be thanking me for the salvation of the world. No, no, no. Because even though God used the betrayal and used it to accomplish his glorious plan, there was nothing but wickedness in your heart that drove you to it. And God will hold you responsible for the wickedness of your heart just as much as he will use all things to work together for his good. Verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Don't you love this? He goes, look, Rabshakeh, Rabshakeh, please. You know, you're speaking in Hebrew. All these people around us, you know, because there's people everywhere, they can understand. This is gonna, the people aren't going to understand Aramaic is the diplomatic language that we all use. You understand? We understand. Can we just talk Aramaic? We don't want to start a stir among the people. Look at what Rabshakeh says in verse 12. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words, and not to the men who sit on the wall, who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Yikes. You know what that is? That's pointing forward to what it was going to be like during the siege going to get so bad in the siege that that's what you're going to be eating and drinking. 
just a little tidbit reminder there to encourage. You could just imagine Rav Sheka shouting that to everybody around, right? Now he has their attention. Whoa, whoa, what's this? Now Rav Sheka just keeps going. Look at verse 13. What a jerk. He goes, verse 13. <laughs> oh, God's going to get this dude. Look at it. Verse 13. Then the Rav Sheka stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. It's so interesting here. You know, (laughs) saying don't do that to Rabshakeh was like saying it to a naughty child. Don't speak to the people. Well, he couldn't wait to speak to the people. And here's his speech to all the people. And the first thing he says is he says, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Rabshakeh's speech was intended to make God's people doubt their leaders. Don't let him deceive you, for he'll not be able to deliver you. Look at verse 15. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Rabshakeh's speech was intended to build fear and unbelief in God's people. You can't trust your leaders. You can't trust the Lord. And he goes on, verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine and from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink waters of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hands of the king of Assyria? You see his logic here? He says, first of all, hey, you know, uh, surrender's not such a bad option. Surrender to us. Look at all we'll give you. You'll have your own vine, your own fig tree, you know. Man, this is like selling swamp land in Florida. You know, anybody buying this, they're living in dreamland. But that's what Rabshak is painting the scene. Oh, just be so beautiful. Just surrender to us. We'll make it nice for you. And it says, we'll come and take you away to a land like your own land. Fascinatingly, Rabshakeh is referring to the policy of ethnic cleansing and forced resettlement practiced by the Assyrians. When the Assyrians conquered a people, they forcibly resettled them in faraway places to keep their spirits broken and their power weak. And Rabshakeh is trying to make this terrible fate seem attractive. Oh, we'll give you a beautiful vacation, you know, in a faraway land. Well, you'll never come back. Oh, beautiful vacation. And then, if you noticed it here at the end of verse 18, Rabshakeh starts cutting his own throat. Let's look at it here in the middle of verse 18. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their country from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? You see his logic there? His message is simple and cunning in its satanic logic. He says, you know what? Let me rattle off you the nations that we've conquered. The gods of those nations were not able to protect them against us. What makes you think that your God is going to do any better? Your God is just like one of them. And he can't protect you any better than they did. Now, if there was anybody listening 
to Rabshakeh. At that moment, anybody with spiritual understanding, they would have started planning Judah's victory party right then. All right, you know, look, we're going to need a lot of punch, you know, chairs, get the big hall. We've got to get a band. Who's going to, you know, you start, just start working out the victory party right now. Look, it's one thing to speak against Judah. It's one thing to speak against its people, its leaders. It's another thing entirely to speak against the Lord God of Israel this way, to mock him and to regard him as just another God. I find this to be so typical of the work of the enemy of our souls. Rabshakeh was going well until he simply overstepped his bounds. You ever find that in Satan's attacks on you? Satan will be making sense to you in some kind of deception or temptation that he's weaving for. Then all of a sudden he gets crazy with it. It's way out of bounds. And you go, man, that's just stupid. Well, here, Rabshakeh was going fine until he just got a, a little too big for his britches, didn't he? And he starts speaking against the Lord and offending the Lord God in a way he's going to soon regret. Look at the response of the people here, verse 21. But they held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with the clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Now, I love this. They didn't try to argue with Rabshakeh. Often it's useless, if not dangerous, to try to match wits with demonic logic. How much better it is often to keep silent and trust God instead of trying to win an argument. F.B. Meyer says, Silence is our best reply to the allegations and taunts of our foes. Be still, O persecuted soul. Hand over thy cause to God. It is useless to argue, even in many cases, to give explanations. Be still and commit thy cause to God. I mean, Hezekiah wisely said, don't answer him, and the people wisely obeyed it. And so they come to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. Look at it here, verse 1 of chapter 37. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, son of Amoz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. Now, Hezekiah is so right on in how he reacts to this. The first thing he does is he takes on the expression of deep mourning and sorrow before God. He treats it as if somebody just died. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. He he covers himself with ashes. He, he, He does well to see the situation as it really is. You know, oftentimes when we're in some kind of trial or difficulty, we handle it poorly because we never see the situation accurately. Hezekiah saw it accurately. This is terrible. We've got to see it for what it is. And by the way, there was good reason for Hezekiah to be so humble before the Lord. Now, I can't go on all the details on this right now, but when you do a careful examination of Judah's history under the reign of Hezekiah, a lot of this was Hezekiah's fault. When the Assyrians first came against Judah, Hezekiah tried to rebel against them. Then he tried to buy them off. Then he tried to form an alliance with Egypt. He has not handled this very well. I mean, he was a godly man, but he didn't handle this very well so far. 
a lot of this, you could say, was Hezekiah's fault. Can we just sit together tonight and praise God and thank him that even when it's our fault, we can come to God and seek his strength? And I just thank you that the Lord doesn't say, hey, that's your problem, man. You made the bed. You lie in it. Man, God is so good to say, yeah, you know what? You sure got yourself in a mess. Now humble yourself before me and let's see your way out of this. Thank you, God, that you're so faithful to us to do that. But that's not all. That he, did. he didn't just mourn. Did you notice at the end of verse 1? He went into the house of the Lord. He went and he sought the Lord his God. And then he sent Eliakim, Shebna, and the elders of the priest to Isaiah the prophet. He sought out the word of the Lord given through the prophet of the Lord. And he explained the situation to Isaiah like this. He says, the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. This is like a proverbial expression for a terrible calamity. The mother's about ready to give birth. She's been through a long and difficult labor. It's been torturous. It's been agonizing. And there she is. The baby's about to come out. But she doesn't have an ounce of strength left. You know what that means? It means probably the baby's going to die and the mom's going to die. Isn't that terrible? Here this woman finally has a child, finally has the opportunity to give birth, and she's almost there. But not only is there not going to be a baby, they're both going to die. You know, nowadays we'd say, well, just do a C-section. But they couldn't do that back then. And so this is a proverbial expression for like the ultimate calamity. And he says, look at it there in verse 4 and 5. He says, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that's left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. He said, Isaiah, pray for us. Maybe the Lord would have heard the words of Rabshakeh. And God will say, I'm having none of that. That's his only hope. Our nation is devastated by this Assyria invasion. Jerusalem is left alone, standing. Pray for the remnant that's left. Look at Isaiah's response. It's so beautiful here in verse 6. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. I love it in verse 6. Thus says the Lord. You know, Isaiah was aware that he was speaking as a prophet of the Lord. And without hesitation, he speaks as if he were speaking for the Lord God of heaven. You can count on it that Isaiah didn't take this lightly. You know, well, thus says the Lord, I don't know, something good's going to happen. No. The fate of the nation, and by the way, his entire credibility as a prophet rested on this, right? I, Isaiah, look, this is where the rubber meets the road. Isaiah's prophesying about something that's going to happen soon. And either he's going to be true or he's not going to be true. Isaiah and speaking for the Lord, is about to make a bold prediction, and his prophecy will be entirely provable. Everybody's going to know whether Isaiah is a true prophet or a false prophet in just a few days. So what does he say? Look at it there in verse 6. Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard. I hope I'm not reading into the text here. 
but I'm sensing just a very subtle, a very slight rebuke from the Lord in that sentence. Do not be afraid of the words which you've heard. The, the most gentle rebuke, perhaps, maybe the Lord saying to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, it's good for you to seek me so passionately, but the words of Rabshakeh are only words. Don't be afraid of them. He's just talking. Trust me. He's just talking. Let's remember that, Hezekiah. And then he says, oh, I love this in verse 6. He says, Do not be afraid of the words with which you've heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. You know what Hezekiah said when he heard that from Isaiah? He goes, all right, God heard. He heard him. He heard him blaspheming him. Yes, yes. You know, Hezekiah knows, oh, you know, it's done, man. It's finished. The Lord heard that. He heard him say that. So God's going to defend his own honor. You know what else is cool about this? You'd, You'd have to... Pick it up in the original Hebrew to know this. In the verse 6 where he says, with which the servants of the king of Assyria. I mean, it says servants. He's referring to Rabshakeh and the other guys, right? Not King Sennacherib, but his underlings. He uses such a derisive term for servants there. He uses a word that basically says, you know, the, the flunkies of the king of Assyria. Or the, you know, the errand boys or the messenger boys, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, these flunkies of the king of Assyria, don't worry about them. He says, this is what he says about the king of Assyria, verse 7. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Here the Lord God assures Hezekiah that he will indeed deal with Sennacherib and all the people under him. He's heard the blasphemy, and he'll bring judgment against him. Verse 8. So the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libnah, for he had heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Tirakah, king of Ethiopia, he has come out to make war with you. So when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look, you've heard what the kings of Syria have done to all the lands by utterly destroying them. Will you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezpah and the people of Eden who are in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Seravim, Hevna, and Iva? I love this. Rabshek is away, right? He's out doing business for the king of Assyria. But then he hears that Hezekiah is starting to trust the Lord again. Now, Reb Shechem, much to his discouragement, he can't be there right there to discourage Hezekiah. So he does it through the, through the wonder of mail. He writes him a letter. And he says, you know, let me do everything I can to build fear and discouragement and despair in you and remind you that your God cannot deliver you. Now again, if he would have read it with an eye of faith, this would have been trust building in Hezekiah. He would have read this letter from Rabshakeh and said, he's putting down the Lord again. He's sealing his own doom. He's inviting judgment. But yet this letter affected Hezekiah when he got it. Look at it there, verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Can't you just see that? Hezekiah gets this letter. And all of a sudden, you know, he he was so 
confident. He was so sure when the prophet Isaiah gave him the assurance. You know, he's, yes, okay, I'm believing you, Lord. And then he gets the letter, and it all comes crashing down on him again. You ever feel like that? You're welcome, Lord. You're strong. Yes, Lord, I'm trusting you. I'm believing you. And then something else happens. You get the letter or whatever it is. Oh, God, nothing's going to work out. It's all going to be this. Oh, Lord. What is, what is Hezekiah? He takes that letter. And he goes into the house of the Lord. And he says, Lord, read this. Here it is, Lord. What are you going to do with this, God? Read it. In this, Hezekiah boldly and effectively fulfilled the later command of 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You know, that's what we've got to do, isn't it, people? You've got a letter to lay out before the Lord. You've got something that, you know, it's just, it's just shaking you again. Maybe it's a letter from a creditor. Maybe it's a medical report. Maybe it's your, your grades from school. You just got to go and spread it out before the Lord. Lord, do something with this. I cast my cares before you. I think some of you need to do that. I mean, literally tonight. You need to go home and get on your knees before the Lord and take that letter, take whatever it is, and just open it up before the Lord. Say, Lord, read this. I'm in a world of trouble, Lord. It might all be my fault, God, but I'm here. And I, I just ask you, Lord, to help me. I cast my cares on you. Now, I think for any pastor, for anyone in the ministry, this has a special impact. Because to be in the ministry means that you're going to receive nasty letters from time to time. And uh, it's a valid question for pastors. You know, what, what should you do with them? Often the best thing to do with them is simply to throw them away, especially if they're anonymous. You know, when I get an anonymous letter, you know, pastor, you stink, you know, like that or whatever. And it's not, you know, you just, you just throw it away. But, you know, if it's to be read, if it's to be kept, you need to spread it out before the Lord. You need to say, Lord, show me what there is in this letter that I need to hear. Show me. What I need to disregard, Lord, help me to see beyond this person's sinful attitude or tone to see if you have something in this for me. You know, sometimes the people who write a letter to you like that, uh, maybe they're off the wall, maybe their heart isn't right with God, but maybe God has something to say to you from that. God used Balaam's donkey to speak to him. Who knows who the Lord might use to speak to you? You need to listen. You need to spread it out before the Lord. Of course, one of my favorite stories about this is an old preacher who received a letter. No sender, no return address on the envelope. And when he opened it, he opened up the, the letter and opened it, and just one word on the letter, that was it. And it just said, with an exclamation point after it, fool. That was the letter. Wow. So he takes it with him into the pulpit the next Sunday, and he goes, you know, I got the strangest letter this week. He goes, Never before have I received a letter where the writer signed his name and forgot to write anything else. <laughs> so he has spread out the letter before the Lord. Now look at Hezekiah's prayer beginning at verse 15. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord saying, You know what, I'm going to read this prayer and then we're going to go back and take 
Almost every line is beautiful in this prayer. But let's read the whole thing as a thing. Then Hezekiah prayed the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, who is sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. What a glorious prayer. See how he begins the prayer? Verse 16, O Lord of hosts. You know what a host is? It's not someone who greets you at the door. O Lord of hosts means O Lord of armies. Isn't that great? What did Hezekiah need? He needed an army. He needed a heavenly army. His need was military. And so he says, Lord of armies, I need your help. What do you need from the Lord? You need compassion. You need strength. You need mercy. You need forgiveness. Address God that way. Oh, God of all strength. Oh, God of all mercy. Oh, oh God of all forgiveness. I need you. And then he says, verse 16, O oh Lord of hosts, God of Israel. You know, God, we belong to you. Remember us? You're our God. We're Israel. You're our God. You won't forsake us. You have a covenant with us, God. Then he says, verse 16, O oh Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. That emphasizes the glorious majesty of God enthroned in the heavens. It's just spectacular. And listen, let me tell you something. Surely the one who dwells between the cherubim would never allow Reb Shekha's blasphemies to go unpunished. Not that one, right? Not the God who dwells between the... Not that God of all glory and might. I mean, just see Hezekiah's heart. Oh, he says, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. And then I love this. Look at the next line. You are God, you alone. Well, isn't that the most simple title for our Lord? God. You are God. But it's perhaps the most powerful. You know, if he's God, then what can he not do? If he's God, then what is beyond his control? Hezekiah realizes the most fundamental fact of theology. You want the first lesson, first lesson of theology right now? God is God and you are not. That's it. God is God, and Rabshakeh, or Sennacherib, and the Assyrians are not. You are God, you alone. And he says, it just gets better and better. Look at verse 16. You have made heaven and earth. Now, you know what? What can't the Lord do then? I mean, he made it all. He sees that the Lord has all power and all rights over created things. You can almost feel Hezekiah's faith rising as he prays this, don't you? He's like, yeah, 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 this is, this is the one. This is the one we're praying to. And then he sees, oh, verse 17, so grab onto this, people. He says, incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Now, in one sense, don't you think that's almost insulting to say to God? What, God, you know, are you listening? Are you seeing? No, no. Hezekiah knew very well that the Lord did in fact hear and see the blasphemies of Rabshakeh. 
This is a poetic way of asking God to act upon what he has seen and heard, assuming that if God sees it, man, he's going to act, right? If he see, He's going to do something about it. And then he says, all the words of Sennacherib who sent to reproach the living God. Lord, you got the, you're the living God. I, I know Sennacherib has wiped out all those false gods of the other nations, but they're false gods. They're made of the work of men's hands, wood and stone. They're not able to save them. But the living God, Lord, you can do it. You're different from them, Lord. And do it and look at his passion for the glory of the Lord at the end of verse 20, that all the earth may know that you are Lord, you alone. His fundamental passion isn't for self-preservation. Oh, God, save my skin. It's, Lord, glorify yourself. Your glory. You alone. Look at it here in verse 21. It's so spectacular. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Let's just stop right there. Because you have prayed to me. That's what the Lord said. The glorious answer which fills the rest of the chapter came because Hezekiah prayed. What if he wouldn't have prayed? Then we're to think that no answer would have come. And Jerusalem would have been conquered. No, no, no. God promised. Well, hey, you know what? He said because he prayed. Hezekiah's prayer really mattered. Let me ask you a very pointed question here this evening. How many blessings, how many victories, how many souls saved for Jesus' glory lie unclaimed in heaven until the Lord can say to us, because you have prayed to me? Here's the word, verse 22. This is great. It's an extended section. We're going to read all the way down to verse 35. I want you to get the feel for this. This is the Lord. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you've reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I have come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter its farthest height to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that you should be crushing fortified cities into heaps and ruins. Therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as grass of the field and as the green herb, as the grass on the housetops, as the grain blighted before it's grown. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. Because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year of what springs from the same. Also the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall take again, shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, will do this. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Mister. You know, it's like, wow. You know, there's so much that we could examine detail by detail of this marvelous prophecy that the Lord gives to Rabshakeh and Sennacherib. A couple things, and, and we'll just touch on a few points in this. First of all, I want you to consider that even the Lord is speaking this to who? To Rabshakeh and Sennacherib. They probably never heard it with their own ears, right? I mean, Isaiah didn't have an audience with them. Now, maybe they heard it secondhand through writing, through a written report. You know what? Maybe they only heard it in hell. Maybe once these guys faced their judgment, the Lord sent a messenger and said, oh yeah, I just thought you might want to read this. But even if they never heard it, it sure was encouraging for Hezekiah and his men, right? Look at what it says there, verse 22. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you. You know what the whole picture there is in verse 22? It's as if the army of the Assyrians has come to ravish the beautiful virgin Jerusalem. You know what God says? She's going to be just like a pretty girl who turns her head and laughs at you and scorns you and walks away. You're not going to get anything over on her. Then he goes on and he says, verse 23, Whom have you reproached and blasphemed against? Whom have you raised your voice? It's as if the Lord said, Mister, do you know who you're dealing with? It's like, listen, you want some of this? You want some of me? The Lord's saying to Rabshakeh. Do you really want this? Rabshakeh didn't know. Then he goes, oh, you're so proud. You say, by the multitude of my chariots, I've come up to the high of the mountains, blah, blah, blah. God says, you know what? I arranged that all for you. That was me. You were just an instrument of judgment in my hands. And you know what? Now I've had enough. Now I'm not going to use you anymore. I love, I love it what he says there in verse, check it out, verse 28. I know your dwelling place. I got your number, buddy. I know where you live. I know when you get up. I know when you go down. I got your number. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a hook in your nose and drag you along. You say, wow, that's pretty severe. What is it, body piercing in the Old Testament? <laughs> no, let me tell you exactly what this is. This is how the Assyrians treated others. When the Assyrians would go in and do their ethnic cleansing and forced uh, repopulation of areas, how they would literally lead people away is they would put a big fish hook in their lip or in their nose and string them all together like on a big stringer like fish, and they would have a guy leading them, and they'd lead them out. By the way, they'd strip them naked when they do that just to humiliate them all the more. Now, you know what? You're not going to run away when there's a fish hook in your lip and it's attached to a big string, right? And that's what they do. God says, you know those hooks you guys like to use? I'm going to put one on you. I'm going to draw you along with it. He goes, listen, you're just not going to get it. Verse 33, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come against it with a shield, nor build a siege mount against it. And I love what he says in verse 35, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. Why does God defend the city? For his own sake. God will defend his own glory. You know, sometimes we unnecessarily think that we must defend the glory of the Lord, but that really isn't the case. Do you understand the Lord's more than able to defend his own glory? But it wasn't just for his own glory. Look at it there at the end of verse 35. I love this. Let this sink into your heart. 
and for my servant David's sake. You know when David lived? About 300 years before this. But God still remembers his love and his promise to David. Isn't that beautiful? You know, we just got through 1 Samuel and saw this precious relationship that David had with the Lord. This is how precious it was. 300 years later, God was still doing favors for David. You know what? It wasn't for the city's sake at all. You could say that Jerusalem deserved judgment. But God says, for my sake and for David's sake, I'm going to protect you. Isn't that what the Lord does in our life? Friends, don't you deserve judgment from the Lord? I do. But he says, for my sake and for Jesus' sake, for the son of David's sake, I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you. Verse 36. It doesn't get better than this. Then the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. When the people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. All right. You know, there's this huge army, hundreds of thousands of troops, encamped outside of Jerusalem, ready to start the siege, ready to start it. God just says an angel, go, go take care of this, God says, just go take care of it for me, all right? One night, the angel kills 185,000 Assyrians. And that's it. So long for the siege. Goodbye, Sennacherib. Goodbye, Rabshakeh. That's it. The Assyrian army was stopped. It was turned back without ever having shot an arrow into Jerusalem. The unstoppable was stopped. The undefeated was defeated. It's done. It's over. By the way, can I say that this was not hard for God to do? I think the greater miracle is to see Hezekiah and the hearts of the people of Judah turn towards the Lord. You know, that's what the Lord, if you want to say anything's hard for God to do, I mean, of course, we're just speaking figuratively. But that's hard for God to do. Kill 185,000 Assyrians? He dispatched some flunky angel to do that. And then verse 37. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home, and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass that as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach his god, that Adramelech and Sherazar his son struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Esheraldon the son reigned in his place. You know, it all happened exactly as God said it would. Siege is over. He goes home never to come into the land of God's people again, ever. After this retreat from Judah, Sennacherib commissioned a record, which is preserved in the spectacular annals of Sennacherib, which is known as the Taylor Prism, which can be seen in the British Museum. Oh, if you ever got a chance to go to the British Museum, you go. It's in London. Oh, exciting biblical artifacts they have there from the days when you know, the whole world was a colony of Britain and they just pretty much ripped off all the antiquities of all the world and brought them back to London. Man, do they got some neat stuff there. But... When they have this record of uh, Sennacherib, he writes his own record of this. It shows how full of, heart is, how full of pride his heart is because he never mentions that he didn't conquer Jerusalem. He never mentions his defeat. He says, well, I did this and I did this, but he never says, I conquered Jerusalem because he didn't. He had to leave with his tail between his legs. Now, between verse 37 and 38 is 20 years. Sennacherib left. And 20 years later, he was struck down by his sons. He met the bitter end of death at the end of swords held by his own sons. 
Now let me conclude with an old Jewish legend. It's just a legend. Nobody take this seriously, okay? But there's an old Jewish legend that says how it was that Sennacherib's sons came to kill him. You see, it says that Sennacherib was really troubled at how much God was blessing the Jews. It's like, Lord, you've blessed them so much. I mean, what's going on? And somebody came and told him it was because Abraham was so faithful that he offered up or was willing to offer up Isaac and sacrifice to the Lord, his only son. That's why God loved the Jews and blessed them so much. So you know what Sennacherib says? He goes, man, I'll impress the Lord even more. I'll sacrifice two of my sons, and I'll really go through with it. Then God will love me even more than he loved Abraham. Well, his two sons got wind of the plan, and they said, no way, Dad. And they finished him off. Just a Jewish legend. But it's a nice story. (laughs) Hey, you know what? The Lord knows how to take care of his own, doesn't he? Doesn't the Lord know how to take care of us? Doesn't the Lord know how to deliver his people? I just love it. I know it's been a long study tonight, but man, you couldn't do chapter 36 without doing chapter 37, could you? No way. So let's pray and thank the Lord for it tonight. Lord God in heaven, we want to thank you for the power and the majesty of your word. We want to thank you that you're the Lord of hosts, that you're our covenant God, that you're the one who dwells between the cherubim. Lord, we just praise you and worship you tonight. We thank you that you're still winning victories in our life. Not because we deserve it, Lord, but because you're rich in mercy, because of your love and your faithfulness to your son, Jesus Christ, and because of your own glory. And Father, we ask that you would give us the faith of Hezekiah to trust in you, to not listen to the demonic lies and the demonic logic of a Rabshakeh in our lives, but to trust you and to love you and to seek you, Lord. Help us to rise above every demonic opposition. Love you and serve you and worship you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.